Welcome to the Data Points Podcast. Focused on the importance of data in a 21st century world, we discuss data-centric topics such as fundamentals of data management and use, strategies for building buy-in within organizations, the crucial role the communities play in this important work, and so much more. My name is Andrew Nicklin, and I'm the futurist at large at the Center for Civic Impact. In this role, I normally look at emerging best practices at the intersection of government, data, and technology. But for the past year or so, I've also been supporting some valuable research projects at our parent institution, Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're taking a look at the eSchool Plus initiative, a multidisciplinary team. We'll talk about how the team came together and what interesting work has taken place in the past year because of them. We are joined today by Dr. Annette Anderson, Dr. Megan Collins, and Dr. Ruth Faden, who are the creators and leaders of the eSchool Plus initiative. Thank you all for being here today. I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourselves. So this is sort of outside the context of the eSchool Plus program. So Dr. Anderson, would you mind introducing yourself, telling us what you do? Yes. Hello, Andrew. It's so nice to be here with you today. I am a faculty member in the School of Education at Johns Hopkins. I'm actually the faculty lead for all of the school administration and supervision programs. And I'm also the deputy director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Safe and Healthy Schools. Thank you. Next up, we have Dr. Megan Collins. Hi, Andrew. Great to be here with you today. Um, my name is Megan Collins. I am a pediatric ophthalmologist at the Wilmer Eye Institute. I'm also uh, an ethicist at the Berman Institute of Bioethics, and I co-direct the Johns Hopkins Consortium for School-Based Health Solutions. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Ruth Faden. Hi, Andrew. Uh, you are my favorite futurist at large. I absolutely love that title. And in my next life, that's what I want to be. I think that's just so fabulous. All right. Uh, I, my background is in bioethics. I'm the founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. My work over uh, decades now has concentrated primarily around questions of justice and equity nationally and globally. In the context currently of the pandemic, I've been working uh, in addition to the K through 12 space equity issues, which we'll talk about. I've been working a lot on vaccines and also on policies for non-pharmaceutical interventions. I'm on the WHO stage working group on COVID-19 vaccines and vaccinations. So as you can see, we have uh, a really awesome set of guests today. I am I'm thrilled to have all of you here, and I'm excited for the conversation to go forwards. Uh, actually, Ruth, I'd like to start with you, if it's all right. Um, I, I'm really curious about the eSchool Plus initiative in the sense that it is an interdisciplinary uh, team of people. And so I'm curious how, you know, in your introduction, you talked about how you all come from different parts of the Johns Hopkins Institution. How did you come together, and, and what were you trying, what kind of shared vision were you trying to create? So there's always like a personal story, right? That that is that stands behind how things happen, human relationships and connections. Uh, we're, if we can reach back and remember February 2020, right? Uh, early days when in the U.S. it was just unclear what we were facing, and globally it was even more unclear uh, what was what was happening, I got concerned about the prospect of school closures as a response to what looked like could be a very significant pandemic, having been down the sort of pandemic road before, and particularly worried about the implications for our country's most disadvantaged kids. I wrote an op-ed about it, kind of was 
perceived as maybe a little too early, but it was perfect because another colleague, Alan Regenberg, who's not um, on the podcast with us today, uh, sort of immediately connected the dots and said, you've got to talk to Megan. Megan, you've got to talk to Annette. And that conversation just blossomed into, okay, we're all absolutely obsessed and worried about the same set of issues. What can we do? I, I regret that we weren't able to invite uh, Dr. Regenberg to the call, but um, uh, certainly uh, it's great to hear that backstory. And actually, the, I came in a lot later than that, so that's not uh, a story that I even actually knew. Um, so, Annette, I'd like to turn to you. Um, eSchool Plus, is, is uh, it's got the word school in it. It's obviously centered around education. Um, why is uh, this work so important? Why is the initiative so important? Um, what are we trying to focus on here? Well, I think that, you know, as Ruth said, you know, we were concerned equally about equity as we were walking towards this pandemic. I think from the School of Education side, I think there were lots of questions from the around the end of January as well. And so we weren't sure what this was going to mean for anyone. Um, and so, you know, it was just fortuitous that we were all kind of coming together to have this same conversation. So I think that, you know, we try to focus in the eSchool Plus on the E, which means equity. We deliberately wanted the E to be about equity because we were really concerned that not only would all children be impacted by school closures, but our most vulnerable students were going to be disproportionately impacted by school closures. And we didn't quite at the time as we were going into this, we didn't know how. And so part of the conversation was just about how we thought those uh, those impacts would, uh, would keep our most vulnerable students away from achieving equity in their educational pursuits. I, I love that. And I think that's so important. And to be honest with you, that vision is part of the reason why I was so excited to work with you as a team, because you you really were bringing together um, these ideas that had lived in kind of separate silos of the institution and, and working together in a collaborative way brought some interesting new power to it. And actually, I'd like to ask Megan to expand on that a little further. Um, what were you as a team able to start doing that you couldn't do in your own bubbles, if there, if there are any examples of that? Oh, there's so many examples. Um, you know, I think the, the benefit of this initiative is that we, we all did have different um, backgrounds and areas of expertise. I mean, mine in particular, um, which I often get asked, how am I involved in this because I'm an eye doctor, um, was really pre-pandemic using um, schools and relationships with schools to bring healthcare to kids that were otherwise not getting access to healthcare. And for me, it was in the realm of eyeglasses. Um, so when schools closed across the country, all of a sudden those school-based health programs closed too. Um, and so from the, from the healthcare perspective, I was very worried about the wellness of children. Um, when, when Ruth and Annette and I and the rest of our, our fabulous team of faculty and students got together, we really started thinking about um, not only what was lost from an education perspective, but those other sort of that social safety net that schools provide for kids, whether it's food, whether it's supervision, whether it's housing, um, or kind of a safe place, warm place to stay during the day, or healthcare services, what was going to happen to all of that? And the conversation was so much focused at that point in time about you know, how long are we closing for? And is it a week? Is it two weeks? Um, people weren't 
planning long-term at that point. But I think all of us were worried about that and started collectively um, issue spotting and trying to develop resources in the event that things would go in the direction that they ended up going. That actually seems like the perfect segue into, I guess, the first project that I got involved with you folks on, um, where you were really interested in delivering a set of resources and and being helpful for schools as they were evaluating um, in, in sort of the mass closures in March. They were then turning their attention to how to reopen and reopen safely, but also um, how to stay closed, but still continue to offer valuable services to their communities. And so, Annette, I, I maybe want to turn to you and ask you, when you got started on the school reopening work, what were you what were we trying to achieve here? What, what, what were we hoping to get? Yeah, so it's really fascinating because I think when we first approached the work, there was no sense that this was going to be, as Megan just said, a long-term kind of trajectory to, to this. In fact, my own kids in their school closure were told that they would be out for two weeks. It was going to be the first week, and then the second week was their spring break. So everyone expected that within two weeks, we were going to have this resolved. And so, you know, now as we sit a year later, and my kids are still upstairs in Zoom school, you see that, you know, we were not even really sure what to expect for what was to come. And so as schools were trying to start thinking about what it would take to close, it was very easy to kind of close schools. I've said often that it felt like a snow day, right? We thought like, well, we'll just close and kids will just kind of adjust. We'll give them paper packets. So I mean, there was just not this really deep sense of what it was going to take for school to continue business as usual. And so I think part of what we were doing as we were getting started was to say, have you thought about these things as you're closing schools? Have you thought about the services, the wraparound supports that schools provide to families um, as you're closing so that you can start to also now think about reopening? And as we were having those conversations, we just realized that there were just such a litany of issues that were not necessarily being being lifted up and we wanted to be able to provide a support to schools through that checklist so that they could use that to help them to go through some of these key issues, particularly, again, as it focused around our most vulnerable students. And that in turn, at least as far as I remember, led to the development of, I guess, a research and data collection project to track how states in particular were responding to or were providing uh, resources and supports for their schools um, in, term, in the context of reopening, but also in the context of perhaps staying closed. Um, and I hope, Ruth, that I'm going to give, uh, I hope that I'm giving correct, credit to the correct person um, when I say that one of the things that I heard from you, Ruth, was that um, this was a bit of a paradigm change for for the way we at say an academic institution had to engage with with people outside the institution right so like in in a kind of a traditional research project we do a lot of data collection we do a lot of analysis and then we publish and i i i remember having a conversation with you i think where um you emphasized that this was like just a new way of of um uh, of doing business and and recognizing i think that uh, the information you were collecting, things were happening so fast. The information you were collecting then, therefore, probably need to become public in as real time as possible. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So, of course, we have to contextualize yet again. We were doing this at Johns Hopkins, which had already stepped out big time in terms of providing data resources to the world. Uh, 
in the context of the pandemic, about the pandemic in the context of the pandemic. But absolutely, the recognition was very clear, right? That this is not a research project that's going towards sort of deep analytics, carefully examined data that would ultimately be reported out only after, blah, blah, blah. We were in a service data context, which is unusual for, at least for us, those of us who were working on the school plus world in the beginning were saying, okay, we're collecting this data so that it will be useful in real time to real policymakers and to parents and to teachers, right? So it's not like we're going to collect this data, we're going to then do something with it, and then we'll report our results and our findings. It was absolutely the inverse. We wanted to make sure that we had data collected as close as we could to real time that was curated in a way that would be helpful and also that was accurate. So we had two challenges. Uh, the th- well, we had three, one of which you helped us with, Andrew, which was visualization. Like, how are we going to make this available and useful, uh, the, it being the data? We had to first think what data would be useful to collect. Could we collect it? Could we collect it accurately? And also, how do we digest it? So how can we curate it? What can we do with it so that, you know, it, it's just not a matter of putting up a bunch of links. Uh, and helping people with that, we needed to be able to go a lot deeper than that and and provide a kind of at a glance, useful, uh, curated, visually appealing, easy to access product, right? That was alien to us. We didn't know how to do that. Well, um, if the number of people who have actually looked at these trackers is any indication. I think we've we've seen some success there, and we'll talk about the number a little bit later. Um, Megan, I'd, I'd like to turn to you because I feel like you, in a sense, have been very close to some of the very specific issues that have come up when we're trying to like collect this data and align it. You know, when we were looking at the reopening tracker, we were looking at 50 states plus all the U.S. territories, and trying and perusing lots of uh, documents. And it, you know, it sounds like that's a lot of work to, to try and understand, like, you know, when one state says something, does that mean the same thing as what another state says? Could you talk about the, the complexities of that a little bit? Because I, I think that that's something that would resonate really well with an audience of government folks who, who have to reconcile what's going on in different departments on a, on a day-to-day basis. I think that's, that's a really interesting challenge. Sure. And uh, in challenge, it was for sure. <laughs> Um, so I think Ruth already started alluding to it. it. It's the it's the issue of what data do you want to collect? Um, does it exist, and how easy is it to get? And um, you know, we had started very early on, actually, just looking at how schools were thinking about how schools in Maryland, in the different um, counties in Maryland, were were handling school closures and what type of um, what type of resources they had available for their students. And so we we called publicly available websites from their departments of health and education and looked at you know um, social media and news media sources as well. Um, you know, I think as Annette alluded to, the, the conversation quickly pivoted by May from school closures to this year's a wash. Let's figure out what's going to happen for next year. And um, in that started at the state level of what were state departments of education going to to step forward and put out as their guidance in this area 
And then how is that going to trickle down to the district level and, and then to the, the individual school level? So we developed this, we developed a framework for what we thought would be important to understand about um, education reopening plans at the state level. And we conceptualized that it would be important to think operationally how they were taking care of kids, how they were going to support um, learning activities, how they were going to support transportation, SARS-CoV-2 protection, PPE, things like that. But, you know, our sweet spot, of course, is equity. So how were school districts thinking about parent choice, about sending their children back to school or teacher choice, about returning to the classroom or thinking of mitigating some of the anticipated losses we were expecting for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds who had really lost out this spring? So we started an entire data collection process of systematically pulling the reopening plans from every single state department of education. And we did this on a daily basis because plans were changing so rapidly at the beginning. And the plans were changing so rapidly because our understanding of COVID at that point in time and our understanding of transmission amongst kids and the safety of whether or not we should be in the classroom or not was such a moving target that um, you know, states continually had to update and modify and, oh, we haven't thought about this yet. So let's, let's think about this. So, uh, we had a wonderful team of individual students who, and research assistants who literally were the ones who would pull all that data. And then, um, once we, we got the actual sources, we would then have to code everything. So we'd have to read through these Sometimes they were 10 pages, sometimes they were 210 page documents. Um, and we coded every single time that they talked about whether it was transportation or whether it was teacher choice or um, transparency and community engagement. And that's Andrew, when you helped us with the process, because I think before you, we were not entirely sophisticated and we're doing all of this in um, Excel and you helped us set up the entire infrastructure and Airtable. Um, because not only do you want to look at a point in time, but you want to look longitudinally. So we had to, and we had to archive things in a way that we could figure out what they had said in May and not just link it to a website because that website would have been updated and we would have lost that information. So you helped us not only kind of you know, create a good system for ongoing data collection, but also to be able to archive and document systematically what we had collected. So if states did come back to us, which sometimes they did and say, hey, our plan actually, you know, addresses this issue or it doesn't address this issue, we would have our, um, we would have our citations, so to speak, to help support what, what our um, coding had, had discovered. And Andrew, if I could just add really quickly to what Megan just said, I think another point about context is that the reason why this work took on more prominence and urgency was because there wasn't a lot of strong communication coming out from the federal level um, about school reopening. There was there was a just a mixed bag of messages that were coming out early on about whether or not schools were safe to reopen. And so part of why our work really took on this sense of urgency was because then we had parents and policymakers, people were trying to figure out what was the right next step to make. Um, and so, you know, it was just fortuitous that we were having this kind of data diving at the very same time that, you know, the federal government was saying, schools are safe to reopen, everybody can go back. And parents were saying, no, no, not yet. And so I think so we found ourselves kind of in this space 
where we were using the data to also inform some of the policies and vice versa. So it was just a very interesting time that we, you know, just kind of stepped into this space to, to start this project. And I would just add to that because I remember when, um, I remember Annette when Ruth, you know, told us that one of the, the great benefits of as we started to visualize this data is that it did bring attention to the fact if states were not considering some of these operational or equity categories, and there is now this, you know, eSchool Plus initiative website that says, you know, X state is not considering these things, it elevated issues that we thought were really important to be part of that ongoing discussion. So there was a great strength in how that data really had an immediate impact on, on policy in ways that I think doesn't always happen when you're doing kind of big data projects. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily going to draw the conversation in that direction, but I, I do remember us having some conversations about how we would present the information publicly and whether we would show just the things that states are doing or also the opportunities for states to expand and, and provide additional resources and practices around. Um, and I think that latter decision created an, an air of accountability and an air of uh, helping to propel the, the entire sort of education sector in the US forwards, maybe just a little bit, but but forwards. And so I think that's, um, I think that's really awesome. Um, I want to pivot to, you know, sort of in September, the reopening conversation kind of, you know, died down a little bit. But then we started to, in December, getting all these emergency use authorizations for vaccines. And so we started to pivot the eSchool Plus work towards the relationship between vaccinations and schools. And so Dr. Faden, I think you're you know closest to the world of vaccines, at least in my experience. Um, I, I'm curious if you could talk about that work, about why it was important to then sort of refocus where we had spent our times on, on um, school closures and school reopenings before, why it was then important to pivot to the, the notion of vaccinations and how they would affect education. One of the things that really is important to, to focus on in the context of this pandemic is kind of what became important when. You know, ultimately, we're going to take a giant wayback machine, not just the tool, but just sort of generally in terms of our collective uh, assessments of what happened and recognize how rapidly what was important shifted depending on what was going, what was going on right then in the pandemic. So in late December and early January, as, as the U.S. and around the world, uh, vaccines were, some vaccine products were receiving emergency use authorization. It was also at a time that there was an intensified uh, conversation and intensified uh, controversy about whether or under what conditions it would be safe uh, to return to school. So at this point in the United States, there are some school districts that are completely open, but many, many, many uh, that have moved and are staying in a distance mode of one sort or another, hybrid or completely. And there's a lot of push and a concern and it's very politicized. And uh, even in the administration, um, the new administration, this has become an issue in the campaign. If we well back even further, the presidential campaign, it was a hot button topic, getting schools reopened again. The vaccine authorization gets dropped in the middle of, of this intense national debate, which is not yet over, although it's you know getting there, about whether, when, how, schools could fully reopen, like all kids could be physically in school all day, like in the good old days, right? What would it take? And an, um, 
a strategy that starts to become much discussed is whether or to what extent vaccinating teachers uh, would help with this problem. We started monitoring at that point both the um, the debate, not in the trackers, but decided we needed to set up a tracker that would monitor how states were prioritizing teachers for vaccines. So we are in a very different mindset. As of early this week, like very exciting, the U.S. has shifted so that everybody over 16 or over 18, depending on the vaccine product, can now get a vaccine or at least can attempt to get a vaccine. Let's put it this way, in every state in the country. But if we can all remember what it was like in January, February, and into March even, where there, each state had its own priority groups, and depending on whether you fit a priority group, you were eligible for, for phase one and phase 1A or phase 1B and so on, we became very concerned that there would be a kind of single place that policymakers could go, teachers could go, that parents could go to see where are teachers qua being teachers in the queue for vaccines in states and, and allowing bring, sort of bring, bringing that information to the conversation about whether or not vaccination of teachers should be considered a necessary condition for school reopening, which still remains a kind of unsettled question. But that's where that's where what got us to that, Andrew. Uh, thank you for that context. And, and I remember shortly after we launched the vaccine tracker, the Biden administration announced or sort of like very strongly emphasized the necessity of teachers getting vaccinated. And so we actually watched our map in the period of a week go from teachers not being prioritized in, in you know, sort of two thirds of states to all of a sudden every state is prioritizing teachers um, and, and being able to offer them vaccines. And, and that was sort of for me, that was a really powerful demonstration of like what happens when you have a national strategy and, and then you have states that can can kind of roll along with that. Um, Annette, I'd like to just sort of take the vaccine conversation a little bit further and, and explore what the implication is for schools. Um, because as, as Ruth mentioned, vaccines are not available for anybody under the age of 16 yet. So are there still implications for, and, and are, there, are there things that we should be looking at in the future data-wise? Um, to understand sort of what impact the lack of vaccines for children is going to have on access to education? Well, I think there are a number of, of scenarios that we should be considering. Um, you know, first of all, it's, you know, whether or not we can mandate that teachers get the vaccine for the return to school. I think that's a hot button topic right now. And we, we ourselves have had that conversation um, in our internal uh, work groups for, for a few months. But when you start thinking about our young people, I think, you know, as as more and more young people become eligible to get the vaccine, the question is, you know, will schools now require them as they require other vaccinations to return to school? Um, so many, most districts have reopened to some degree. They have some level of in-person learning at this point. But the question really is about, um, do we need, now need to, to mandate that these vaccines uh, be given for 16-year-old uh, for students and up? And then now, you know, as the they have started testing on uh, younger and adolescents, should we start expecting that by fall, those same students, you know, would be vaccinated in order to return to classrooms. Now, the challenge of all of that is, is that it's compounded by, you know, this, this notion that even as schools have reopened, we have a large swath of our families that have not returned to school. 
um, in person yet. And so we have to think about whether or not, you know, for those students who are still at home, schools can mandate that students who are learning in a virtual or a hybrid environment could also be mandated as part of a school system to get vaccines, even though those students are learning in a virtual or hybrid um, environment. So it's a it's a kind of a little bit of an ethical quest question, and I'm glad we've got two ethicists on our team to help us to 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 parse through that. But you know, this is one of the issues that will continue, I think, over the next 12 months as we try to figure out, you know, what parent demands are for the vaccine for their children, and then what their demands are for uh, in-person learning for the upcoming school year. I, uh, I really love that um, additional nod to the interdisciplinary nature of the work. And I've personally felt that that's been like very important and a wonderful part of this team. It's obviously sort of the, the recurring theme of, of this episode. Um, I wonder, and, I, and I, I'm gonna direct this to either Annette or Ruth, depending um, on who wants to answer it. I, I wonder if you might, talk a little bit about the challenges that we've seen over the last year in using, obtaining and using data from other sources to get insights. I've heard both of you in various contexts say that just the data isn't there or it's, we can't find it or it's not available. Could you speak a little bit, if there are some anecdotes that you have around that, could you speak to some of that? I, I'll say first, because I know Ruth's answer is going to be very substantial. Um, just very quickly, I think that People misunderstood when we we kept saying everyone wants to go back to school. But I, I, I remember us having the conversation and I said, I don't know where the data is to say that all these families are going to show up when you reopen the doors. And because I was hearing very differently from the community in which I live, from family members, from extended networks, that many parents were not ready to return. And so there was this interesting dynamic that, you know, the media was reporting that, you know, politicians were pushing to reopen, reopen, reopen. But then we were hearing from those who were in school districts and, you know, that teachers unions were saying we should stay closed and districts were trying to figure out how to accommodate teachers. I mean, there was this whole, there's been this whole dynamic around what reopen means. And so I think that, you know, this has been a challenge just in terms of trying to figure out what the data actually means. I think it's also been interesting when you start hearing numbers, you know, saying that so many students have experienced learning loss. We've also really wrestled in our, in our group about what that means. Um, and, you know, we've also heard people push back and say it's not necessarily learning loss, it's learning change. And so I think that part of part of our role as eSchool Plus has been to try to figure out how to have some of those more broad conversations. And so we've also, alongside of the data that we have put on our website vis-a-vis -vis the trackers and the dashboards, we've also had webinar series to help try to unpack some of these critical issues that come up in our conversations. And so it's been another way that we've been able to add to the canon in our understanding of this uh, pandemic as it continues to evolve. And that's been a real joy that we've had another venue and opportunity to really start to dive more deeply into the conversations that many times start right in our, our afternoon meetings where we're talking about them internally. And now we've been able to also bring in some experts to help us to unpack some of those same thoughts. I'm sorry, Ruth. I was actually going to suggest that maybe Megan could, who's looked at some of the different data sources and issues might want to respond, but I'm happy to as well. Go ahead, Ruth. Well, uh, so um, Andrew, your question was where we've had, where we wanted to get data, but couldn't kinds of challenges. Is that the. 
I, I think yes, that was specific my, my question. But I'm also, but I'm, where I'm trying to get to is um, how to make recommendations and decisions in the face of ambiguity, right? Because like we want, like especially as government people, like the idea is to try and make decisions and create policy based upon evidence and, and, and informed by evidence. But in a, in a fast moving situation, like we had with the coronavirus over the last year, um, there are so many gaps in our data. And so we have, many people have needed to move and needed to make decisions um, in, in that sort of data and in that landscape of data and ambiguity. And so that, that's sort of what I'm getting to, but I think, you know, and that story yeah. was also really useful, um, but I also, yeah. I know that you have had some very specific yeah. views on that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that helps a lot. Um, just generally in policymaking, I, I do a lot of work and have for a long time on ethics and, and public policy issues. And of course, you know, having to take policy decisions in context against backgrounds of uncertainty is just sort of what it is, right? We never have all the data we have. We never have the data translated into evidence that we feel good about uh, to, to make uh, what we feel is like a full, what policymakers would feel is a full, you know, a completely sort of well-resourced decision. And some of it, in any event, in the end, you're making um, predictions as a futurist, right? You're looking ahead and kind of trying to envision with modeling or otherwise what's the most likely uh, scenarios that would follow from the different decisions that you would take. So in the pandemic, you know, whatever bad metaphor you want, we could use here. We have been flying the plane, you know, while we build it, right? We've been sailing the ship while we test it. You know, all that sort of stuff is, is absolutely true. Uh, part of the value of uh, sort of visualized comparative policy data of the sort that our trackers represent and many other wonderful institutions have stood up coronavirus pandemic specific trackers nationally and globally that are enormously valuable is that given that everybody is working with you know really profoundly imperfect um, evidence bases it is really uh, useful to see what other people are doing what other policymakers um, positions are in the face of sort of similar or at least roughly parallel evidence gaps. So there's a kind of not evidence, but information that flows, not because we should assume that there's uh, some uh, rightness or correctness in the majority. I don't want to suggest that because a lot of countries are doing X, that means it must be right, or a lot of states are doing Y, it must be right. But it's still helpful to see how other other policy-making units are synthesizing and trying to go forward in the same sort of uh, incomplete uh, context. So if I can do an analogy to vaccines right now, where you know, the world is struggling, right, trying to figure out exactly how to respond to safety signals in relation to two very important products for uh, achieving uh, vaccine coverage in many countries nationally and certainly globally. Uh, getting a sight line into how the different regulatory authorities are responding to the evidence is very helpful. Uh, it's also really helpful to see uh, what information data or evidence they're drawing on in taking the decisions that they're taking. So when we were doing the initial tracker and also with the vaccine tracker, and now what we're doing in our uh, global education work, which I, I guess we'll get to at some point, 
is uh, try to peel back a little bit. It's not only what is the position that the state of Minnesota has taken relative to the state of Maryland, but also in a more granular way, how are they, are they commenting at all on the following 12 considerations that we came up with, for example? And uh, that's allowing us to get a little bit of an understanding of whether they're even taking some of these into consideration as they're addressing their policies. So it's, um, it, I think it's always a mistake to think that, that policymaking can be explained by evidence. I mean, there's, or even by formal, uh, formal methods like cost benefit analysis or cost utility analysis that can only take you so far. There's, in the end, you hit judgments made by human beings often around conflicting or at least uh, important values that are intention. But getting a sight line into what people with parallel decision-making problems are doing is is extremely helpful. Megan, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, um, there's so there's so much to say here. I think for me, honestly, one of the hardest things about this project in sort of the the era that we are in right now is this this was an unprecedented time that no one has ever experienced the likes of in their lifetime. Um, and and so obviously, as we're going through this, we're trying to generate data, we're trying to learn from reliable sources. but um, it was also just a very, it's been a very consequential time in history with people um, not always trusting the sources and not trusting the, um, there's a there's a lot of messaging, there's a lot of conflicting messaging, there's a lot of conflicting data that is out there, and there are a lot of unknowns. And the, the combination of all of those, which um, brings up, I think, expertise that Annette has an education and, and Ruth has an ethics about thinking about, you know, what are, how do you deal with these, these bigger issues of systemic racism and structural justice and the education system overall, um, throw a pandemic on top of that. And is it safe to bring kids back to school or not? It's, it's, it is a challenging time to try to figure out how to do that. And we've tried to be very thoughtful because there, you know, there are, there is conflicting data and there are some people I think very feel very strongly about kids being back in school and there are others that feel very strongly it's not safe to bring kids back to school yet. And there are some people who feel very strongly kids have lost out with virtual learning and others feel that kids have actually, there's been some excellent examples of kids doing well. So I think all of our work has been trying to hear those voices and try to apply some kind of structure and um, framework around what we are learning and where things are going as we as we move ahead in kind of the next year of education in pandemic slash post-pandemic. But um, Andrew, I think one of the things you were, if I'm psychic, you were going to ask me is all of the issues that we have um, struggled with in the US as you think about education and child well-being and how do you collect data and how does the data from one state equal the data for the other state. Um, you can imagine that if you put that on a global scale, you add um, a new levels of complexity in terms of both data collection and data analysis, which is what we have, you know, we've pivoted towards in our partnership with World Bank and UNICEF for the Global Education Recovery Tracker. Could you talk a little bit more about that project and, and how it kind of came to be? And, and I and I'll, I'll just sort of preface this with like from my perspective, this was sort of an interesting signal of success of the previous work that we had done in the sense that um, now there was sort of this interest in like how do we take what we did at the U.S. level and 
and apply it globally. But could you talk a little bit more about, about the effort? Sure. And I, I think one of the exciting things, and timing is everything, that the day we launched our U.S. school reopening tracker was, I think, the day after President Trump had tweeted all schools should reopen. And so there was, you know, this flurry of activity and interest around, should we really be sending kids back to school or not? Um, so over the summer, we actually had a huge um, number of inquiries from state and national policy and advocacy organizations about our work and how that would inform what was happening in the U.S. We also had um, the World Bank, their education work group, reach out to us, very interested in the framework that we had created around how we had looked at reopening plans in the U.S. and thinking about how that might um, translate onto the world stage. And World Bank you know, obviously is very interested in child well-being and has a work group that had already been working in partnership with UNICEF and UNESCO um, administering. At that point in time, I think they had only done their first survey where they had reached out to departments of education across the world and asked people um, what was the status of schools. And what they were interested in in partnering with us was looking on a relatively frequency basis. So every two weeks, a survey goes out to representatives from either World Bank or UNICEF or the Hopkins team helps collect the data. We we try to reach all of the countries across the globe. And we get a, you know, in almost in real time, I won't call it real time because Andrew, you and I are both familiar with the the process of data entry, data cleaning, um, data validation before data visualization comes into play. But looking in real time as what has happened and what started, you know, we started collecting this in January. We're we're planning prospectively to continue looking at what's changing over time. And as we're seeing the the epidemic, uh, I'm sorry, the pandemic ebb and flow in different areas of the world, um, there's a lot of information we can glean about schools being open, schools being closed. But the equity issues on the global scale take on a new meaning. And they, they take on a meaning in terms of, um, of gender and poverty and, you know, access to all of the, the things that education may bring for, for children in low and middle income countries. Um, and it's been, it's been a really illuminating, strong partnership to be able to uh, literally be on the world stage to be part of that um, data collection and hopefully part of the policy discussions that will come out of it. I, this is going to sound like a little bit of a weird parallel, um, but I'm sort of putting on my government hat from the time when I was in government before I came to Johns Hopkins. And, um, you know, in, in many ways, this interdisciplinary team that is the eSchool Plus initiative is is sort of like bringing together a number of different city departments to look at a problem from a set of new angles and try to create some recommendations and some track some information about it. And then when you bring in an organization, like when you put together like eSchool Plus and the World Bank or, and UNICEF, um, in, in government world, it almost feels like the county that your city is in is now recognizing that there's some really interesting value and success happening there and want to um, not capitalize on it, but but be involved and figure out how to both support and benefit from, from that work. Um, and same with UNICEF, right? Like, you know, it's another county, it's the state. Um, and so it's this, it's this, this compounding of partnerships and, and 
So Annette, maybe I can direct this question at you. I think, you know, up until a point, we as the eSchool Plus Initiative was a group of like folks inside the university. And now all of a sudden we have this like inter-organizational partnership going on and that changes the dynamics of things. And so I, I'm really curious to hear your take on like how, the, what, what has shifted in those dynamics? Like, um, and, and, you know, whether that's been, I get, I hope it's been good. Um, but if, that, if that's had any negative effects too. Well, I think that what's been surprising is how clearly we are all aligned still at a global level around equity. And I think that's been what for me has been, you know, really reassuring that, you know, even as we are looking at this at a much broader scale than we intentionally were doing last fall, we are now thinking about how this pandemic is affecting learners, students, children um, from a global perspective and looking at equity. So, you know, whether that's in gender, whether that has to do with a rural versus urban, whether that has to deal with, you know, specific regions of the globe or countries, different political ideologies, you know, we are still trying to unpack this equity question from a much broader perspective. And I think that that is incredibly valuable because that work, I don't know that it has really been done at this scale before. And, and so I think it's really opened another door for us. I think that the more we do the work, the more work we see that there is to do. Um, and so I think it's been really fascinating that we have been able to assemble this team um, in the way that we have because, you know, it seems like we've got all the right people sitting in different seats, but with the same singular focus about getting it right for every child as a learner. And that importance um, has not been lost on any of us um, as we have started this work together as, at a global scale. One of the I mentioned sort of earlier that, that I would come back to this, um, but one of the signals that at least I've seen from that is perhaps a marker of the success of our work is um, that since we launched our trackers and various websites uh, at least a year ago now, um, we have seen over 180,000 people visit our sites to explore our information and to get a better understanding of, um, you know, whether it's school reopening, whether it's the question about vaccinations and teachers, whether it's the question of what's going on globally with schools. Um, I, I would, would like to invite each of you to just pause for a moment and maybe just do a little bit of reflection and, you know, sort of like, what do you, what have you learned from this work? How do you feel about it? I mean, I, I personally feel very proud and I've learned a lot along the way about disciplines that I knew nothing about before. Um, but perhaps I can start with, with, with you, Ruth, and then move, move to the other two. Well, uh, thank you, Andrew. That's a great and uh, a great question that I don't think we've, spend enough time kind of thinking about you know, it's just you went from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing and if something bad happens then it's oh my gosh but when good things happen we just sort of okay that was great but move on <laughs> that was really good let's keep going and uh, so asking us to step back and reflect a little bit especially about accomplishments is uh, is very welcome and actually I think really good for our collective mental health uh, since we work at such an in intense pace here uh, as so many people are doing during the pandemic, if not generally as a baseline. So yeah, it's been a privilege. I mean, it's really been an extraordinary uh, privilege to be able to, to uh, work on something that has turned out to be, to be useful uh, in the real world during a global crisis, right? So I, I will just speak 
issues are deeply personal. I, I have, you know, in my network of friends, people who are having a range of responses to the pandemic, and I'm going to bracket the people for whom there has been real loss and suffering and just put that to the side. But for some people, what they do in, in their day-to-day lives, they're having trouble with meaning, they're having trouble with feeling like they've made a contribution, they're feeling kind of lost and, uh, and aimless, uh, and it's been hard. And, uh, and that, those are real challenges. It's been a privilege, you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of build up. I, I, there, there's no way to calculate how helpful our work has actually been to anybody. Who knows, right? But it's been looked at by people. It's been referenced. We've been asked to help. Uh, it's on the money. It's you know responsive to 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 the to what children and parents and schools are facing in real time. And we're all joined by this passion for the well-being of kids. So for me, when I wrote that op-ed way back when, it was because my first thought always goes to the impact on children who in the world in which I habit, inhabit, have the greatest claim on all of us for, um, uh, for, for maintaining, protecting uh, their well-being. And I just saw it all falling apart for kids. You know, it was just going to be really, really bad for kids. It was going to be really bad for lots of people, but it was going to be really bad for kids. And not because the disease was, was going to be bad. We didn't know that yet. And it turned out, thankfully, so far, it hasn't been really bad for kids, but because everything else around them was at risk of falling apart. And th- and that's basically what has happened. So it's been just, who knows what difference we've made, but at least we've gotten up in the morning knowing what we're doing today, right? You know, maybe we'll, you know, it, it's about what's happening now. And that's been great. That's been really great. Thanks, Ruth. And Megan, any reflections from you? I've learned a lot about Zoom. <laughs> So, you know, Ruth is, um, I admire Ruth because she is so good at putting um, things into such perfect terms, but I I think that sense of purpose um, really resonates with me. Uh, The other thing is, I I do consider all of you on the screen um, friends at this point in time. We've we've been through a lot together (laughs) in the past year. including the the birth of your child, Andrew. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've been through struggles with our own, our own families and everything else. And we have, um, you know, we did really um, come together over what I think is an incredibly important issue from very different um, fields and perspectives and be able to um, create something that I think the sum um is greater than its parts. And, and that's been really powerful to be a part of. And, and the other thing that I love, because I think I'm a, a huge nerd, and this is why I'm in academic medicine, is I love learning. And I feel like I am learning something new on this project every single second of every single day. Um, and in learning in a way that, um, well, I think hopefully help me be a better better physician, a better educator, and be able to kind of continue to contribute meaningfully to partnerships like this and discussions like this. Uh, Annette? So I guess, you know, at the risk of being highly sentimental, I guess, you know, if you told me over a year ago that we would all be together, I would have not believed it. I think for me, the beauty of all of this has been that, you know, I have been able to find colleagues of a same mind and a same heart to work alongside 
this group of geniuses has just been such a joy. And to know that because of some small thing that I did, that we have been able to influence, you know, conversations in the national and now international sphere, it is just, it's astounding to me. It just really, it's mind blowing. And I am so just so deeply honored to be part of this group because you know, when you think of someone like a Ruth Faden, who is iconic, right? Ruth Faden is an icon. And when you think of someone like Megan Collins, who there is no one who is going to outwork or outshine someone like Megan Collins, because anything she puts her mind to, she accomplishes. So when you're working alongside such genius, and even you, Andrew, your capacity around digital uh, visualization and what you have done with the data that has been given to you, it is astonishing. So it has just been such a joy to be part of a group dynamic where, you know, everyone brings their A game every week, every time every conversation and um, knowing that that has been in the betterment of children and families to me that's my life goal so it has really fulfilled so much about what we had hoped to accomplish for kids in this pandemic and i'm just again just just utterly grateful to be part i i appreciate that and, and i also appreciate the acknowledgement um but when i came to hopkins you know, six years ago now, I'm not sure that I would have envisioned that I would be working on this project this time, but it's also, but I will agree that it's been like a really, um, really enlightening. And I've learned a lot about a whole bunch of stuff that I never anticipated that I would ever know anything about. So, um, and, and hopefully I've made a difference along the way as well. Dr. Anderson, Dr. Collins, Dr. Faden, I would really like to just, just deeply thank you for joining us today for this episode of Data Points. Um, it has been a real pleasure to talk with you. And, and last, I'd like to say to our listeners, thank you for listening to us today. For more information about the eSchool Plus initiative, visit equityschoolplus.jhu.edu. And of course, you can find us at civicimpact.jhu.edu.